This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to trek fm's dedicated books and comic show i'm so excited to be here i, I love being here with uh, these gentlemen that i've got with me my other co-hosts and wonderful brilliant talented the one and only dan gunther how's it going dan i i actually really thought you were talking about someone else for a minute there because i, I was about to introduce myself then you started t- saying brilliant and talented and i was backing away from the mic and oh well okay i'll take it thank you good to be here well yeah good good and uh, of course the supremely average bruce gibson <laughs> i can't even get it out without laughing you think this is funny don't you you really think this is funny because when you were introducing Dan, I thought you were talking about me. And then I was disappointed. I thought, oh, well, mine's going to be bigger, but it's average. Just like my day today. Thank you very much. Oh, man, we are having too much fun here, folks. We've had a wonderful time on the other side of the page already. And, of course, the supremely wonderful Bruce Gibson. Guys, I'm, I'm glad y'all are here uh, because we've got some fun news to talk about. First... We finally have some new book covers to judge, which we love doing. We've got our official stamp, which lets us know that something is officially sufficiently exciting. Now, first cover that we have, uh, I I don't know. It's Christopher L. Bennett's Time Lock, the Department of Temporal Investigation series that he's been doing. Another ebook, and the cover finally released. First impressions, gentlemen? Well... <laughs> um, the fact that it says Department of Temporal Investigations on it is exciting. Uh, other than that, is there some like 80s synth music we can be playing here or? Yeah, I don't know what to say about this one. No, I think actually, in all seriousness, I think that you you hit it on the head because the last didn't the last book end or wasn't there? Maybe I'm getting confused. I'm getting confused. Maybe it takes place in the 80s at some point. I don't know. I don't know. But I, the cover didn't bother me when I first saw it because my favorite color is blue. And so when I was seeing all blue, I was happy. I was in my happy space. But, um, yeah, it's not all that exciting. And it does not look like a Star Trek cover. There, you're not seeing anything Star Trek. Ships, planets, characters, nothing. So, yeah, it's, it's Tron or something like that. It looks like a really bad early 80s screensaver. Mm-hmm. That's what it looks like to me. Like Or the early visual know. effects from Quantum Leap. <laughs> yes, it's, yes. It's, yeah. That or Tron, the original Tron, yeah. that kind of thing. That's what we're getting here. It, it's very strange. The only thing Star Trek-y that I'm trying to wrap my... I'm, I'm really reaching here, folks. It kind of maybe has a V'ger thing, you know? Like the mm-hmm. weird things that would flow at you, but that's that's why it looks. I mean, but that's it. There's there's nothing else around it. It's just this blue cover with these things kind of flying at you on the the you know cover, and yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would say that the only thing that is sufficiently exciting is Department of Temporal Investigations. Other than that, the cover, I, I, I feel like it just leaves a lot to be desired, which is really, really disheartening because I feel like even if it's an ebook cover, it needs to be exciting to grab people to want to pick this up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like Bruce said, I like blue. 
So, you know, it's nice. And if this were my computer desktop background, I could stand that for a few I'm blue. You know, come on, guys. 80s, 90s. Yeah, it's all kind of coming together here. When I think of blue, I think of la, 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 la. There we go. Now we're getting I'm 80s. Mr. Blue. <laughs> Thank you. Bow, wow, wow. When you say you're sorry. Anyway, sorry. <clears throat> and Dorian Blues. <laughs> you know, I'll bet they have the best blues music, the Andorians. I think they do. Yeah, they because get it's good, all blue. They get good reception <laughs> on their antennas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, um, so I, I, think, I think this one misses the stamp, doesn't it? I mean, I, I feel like it, it misses the stamp. Yeah, I, I I kind of agree. The thing is, like, if I had this as the desktop background on my computer, I could stand it for a few days. Like, it's it's nice. It looks nice. I just have no idea what this book is about, which is, uh, you know, that's that's kind of sad. Like, I, I wanted a little bit of a hint, a little bit of something about the what the book's about. Now there's nothing here at all. Well, even the last one we were talking about on the other side of the page, Dan, th- this idea... That the the last ebook they did had that wonderful kind of uh, old school clock in you know it, it it looked like time is the fire in which we burn that's kind of the image I got in my brain when I looked at it so it was immediately you know temporal investigation Star Trek all fit this it's just like are we traveling to a digital dimension mm-hmm. yeah it's it's almost like they went. Oh, we've got that time lock ebook coming out. Oh crap! Did we did we make a cover for that? Oh shoot, we didn't. Okay, uh, here we go. You know, like it's just, eh. You see somebody doing the the whole substitute teacher from Key and Peele, where he <laughs> takes the thing. He's like, son of a, you know, he's like, oh, we got to get a cover out right now. Uh, I've got a nice background. Use it. Exactly. Yeah. But I have to say. This has nothing to do with Christopher L. Bennett or the fact that I'm so looking forward to diving into this new book with Dolmer and Luxley. So it honestly can't get here soon enough, Mm -hmm. regardless of what the cover looks like. And luckily, guys, we've got another cover to judge here. Hall of Heroes, the last book in the Prey trilogy, has released their last cover. And I have to say, right up front, this one's getting the stamp because regardless... It's got Klingons on it. It's got Worf on it. It's got the Sword of Kalos and a cool nebula and a bird of prey. I don't, I don't, what more could you ask for? Yeah, this is a pretty cool cover. It earns points for me just for the fact that it's different than what we've gotten before. It's unique looking, kind of like book two in this trilogy. Uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see what, what's going on here because... Yeah, it's cool. It's different. It's immediately attention grabbing. You know, we talked a little bit on the other side of the page. Worf's kind of floating head in the background, hiding there looks a little weird, but uh, he's playing a little uh, Klingon hide and seek. Yeah, or or maybe playing peekaboo with the sword of Kalos. I'm not sure what's going on there. <laughs> <laughs> that was the original name of the novel was Peekaboo with Kalos. <laughs> you know, I'd read that. <laughs> Uh, it's a it's a card one of those like uh cardboard books you know you get for little kids and so they can chew on it and stuff it's really sweet Uh, well i love this because it is something like you said dan each one of these books has been kind of a wtf almost because you know the first one has the enterprise a and the enterprise e on the same cover and then the next one has the weirdest klingon devil that i've ever seen and you know this one has Worf playing hide and seek with you know the sword of kalos which is really cute <laughs> so uh, it it i love it though i i love the boldness of each of these covers and i really think they're going to grab a lot of people's attention and what was great with this is we got a synopsis which goes like this the klingon empire stands on the precipice in the wake of violence from the cult known as the yusong paranoia threatens to break Chancellor Martok's regime. Klingons incessantly call for a stronger hand to take control, one that Lord Krug, master manipulator, is only too willing to offer. But other forces are now in motion, 
Assisted by a wily agent, the Empire's enemies conspire to take full advantage of the situation. Aboard the USS Titan, Admiral William T. Riker realizes far more than the Federation's alliance with the Klingons is in danger. With the Empire a wounded animal, it could become either an attacker or a target. Yet even as hostilities increase, Worf returns to the USS Enterprise and Captain Jean-Luc Picard with a daring plan of his own to preserve both the Empire and its alliance with the Federation may hinge on an improbable savior leading the most unlikely force. Is this Muriel Paris? Hmm. I may be just colored by what we've just read that we'll be talking about in the future. It, there's definitely some interesting parallels here. It could be something to do with that. Yeah, that's. I didn't even think of that. That would be very interesting. That would definitely tie into what we just read that we're going to talk about here later. Um, yeah, it could be. I don't know. I'm starting to worry just a little bit about this. It sounds a bit fantasy to me, just to, just slightly. Like, I hope it doesn't go too far in the fantasy realm. If it's done well, I mean, like, uh, we haven't talked about it on the show, but the uh, Left Hand of Destiny books kind of really get into the Klingon stuff, and they kind of feel Lord of the Rings-ish at times, but... Man, those are good books. So if it, if these can pull it off like that can, I I I'm not too worried about that myself. Well, and and one of the things that I was thinking too is that we've never really explored the Klingon Empire like this and its beliefs and those kind of things and we only I would say the the biggest place that I've seen it done really when it came to the cults like we talked about was with Full Circle and with Muriel Paris and everything that was going on with that storyline. So I'm really wondering if they are going to tie those threads together. Uh, it would be interesting because I can't imagine anybody but Kirsten Beyer playing with Voyager or letting her play with any of those pieces. But it just, it would be really interesting. I, I mean, I guess the most unlikely or improbable of saviors would also be Alexander. Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I hope not, though. I'd rather have Muriel, because like you said, it would tie it all up with these other stories. I mean, the the whole Muriel Paris thing isn't necessarily from the novels. That started from the last season of Voyager, so it could play into that. If somebody's not... Re My point is, if nobody's reading... If not nobody. If somebody's not reading those Voyager novels, they wouldn't be lost, because this could tie into that episode from Voyager. So mm -hmm. I, I think Muriel would be cool. And she was in that episode described as a savior for the Klingon people. So yeah, absolutely. Even the most cursory knowledge of Star Trek, that could very well be. Well, I, I think what this means is that we have a sufficiently exciting cover here and blurb, and I can't wait to be reading this trilogy. And uh, getting people talking about it on the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group, uh, you can find us there on Facebook. Just type Babel to the search field there. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, it's it's It looks really intense, which I, I just can't wait for, especially with this 50th anniversary. It seems like a great way to kind of put a lot of different characters in and celebrate that 24th century version of Star Trek. Twitter, at Trek FM, we're there too. And, so, and then, Dan, we've also got the... Goodreads group, which people can go to and tell them a little bit about that. Exactly. Well, on Goodreads, you can just search for literary treks and you'll find our group there. Just ask to join and one of us will let you write in. We talk about all the books that we've discussed on the show, as well as what's coming up in future shows. So you can keep up to date with everything that's going on, as well as discussions about any book in the Star Trek universe. And then Bruce, look, we're everywhere when it comes to like places you can listen to your podcast, whether it's on Google Play or, you know, you can find us on Stitcher and TuneIn and all those kind of places. But uh, where's the best place you think for people to, to be able to tune into the show and help out the show with some star ratings and reviews? I would suggest going to iTunes because I think iTunes is a great place to go in there and, and subscribe to the episode download the episodes and review and if you want to give us a five star review that's the perfect place because the more reviews we get on itunes the more likely people will be able to find us and then we can continue on and on forever and ever because everybody in the world is listening to us that's that's right man uh well goodness i think we got all that stuff covered uh what do you guys say if uh we jump into the feature and uh talk about some unworthiness do you think we're worthy we're unworthy mm -hmm. 
Guys, we've got a wonderful show for everyone tonight as we continue on with the Kirsten Byer Voyager books that we haven't talked about yet uh, in the relaunch series that she has been working on. And we've reached Unworthy because we got through Full Circle. And I, I we didn't get through Full Circle. We devoured Full Circle like, you know, you do a fine steak dinner. But now that we're at Unworthy, I kind of wanted to ask you guys about the way that Kirsten writes Voyager and her writing Voyager, and I, w- I really wanted to dig in because it was really apparent to me reading this story about how much she brings these characters to life. And we talk about that all the time, but I kind of wanted to really dissect that with certain characters here. And, and so for you guys, what were some of your favorite things that she does with some of the characters here? Well, a lot of the work that she does with the familiar characters, I feel kind of like you said, really brings them to life in a way that I never really felt like they did on the show. Uh, You know, granted, there are some really good episodes of Voyager and some excellent character pieces in Voyager, but on a consistent basis, Chakotay was not somebody I could really connect with. Harry Kim was just kind of there being picked on by people every week it seemed you know tom paris beyond you know a couple kind of rough character who floats with the rules and then kind of settles down beyond beyond a few cursory lines they we never really got deep into these characters it seemed and kirsten Beyer really has this way of making me care about these characters and getting inside their head and part of that's because uh in a novel the format allows you to do that a lot more, but she just does such amazing things with these characters. And it just consistently blows me away how invested I am in Chakotay's life decisions. I never ever thought that I would care two wits about what Chakotay does with his life, but I'm really invested here. You know, I really care about the decisions he's making and what's going to become of him in the future. I think what's really working with this is that she gets the voices 100% correct it sounds just like the show and we're getting depth to the characters but i think what really stood out to me this time is the thing that's working is the fact that we're building on the relationships i feel like there's so many times in television where we might have and especially in some star trek series where it's more about the story and sometimes less about the relationships between our main characters. And this focuses so much on the relationships. So, and it also reminds me of Star Trek Beyond, because if you look at the beginning of that movie, we see the life, the day in the life of a starship officer. You, you know, what, what's your day like? What, what's it like? And in this novel, we get to see things like, you know, oh, sitting down for dinner and having, you know, setting, you know, up Harry on a bit of a date in, in that sort of things. And it's really about how Tom and Balana connect and their issues as a couple and Harry's issues with his friendships with them. I'm not going to go in too deep with that, but it's all about the relationships and how they play off of each other. And I think that's, what's really working in this. I think that the thing that I noticed in this book is the way in which Kirsten takes the elements from the series and that's also already been done in the books that, you know, she picks up from Christy Golden's two duologies. And she puts that all together as if it all flowed. And she picks up those pieces so that it makes the characters feel like those, those elements of their life that weren't important really before because they just weren't in Voyager are now because they're part of who this character is and they're part of their makeup and so that specifically happens, I think, with Chakotay. And, you know, she really built that in her first book, Full Circle, and dealing with the aftermath of everything that had happened with the Borg invasion, the death of Janeway, everything that had happened in Spirit Walk and, and the Homecoming duologies. You know, she puts that all together to make it feel like you've been on a journey with the character. I feel like the same thing with uh, even Seven of Nine. I really feel that she's been given a lot of character depth here, and she her life is finally starting to move forward. 
the flirtation that she kind of has at the end with Cambridge is just so cute and sweet and wonderful, you know. And everything about these characters, is, I, I think, you're you're being fully invested in them, and you're being given reason to be invested in them. Like even the way that she deals with characters like Cambridge and Eden, who are brand new to us for for the most part, you know, uh, she's really diving in and creating dynamic stories to make you care. And and that takes I just. The last time that I really felt that in a book, uh, Bruce, I think you'll agree, was Star Wars Lost Stars, where brand new characters were introduced, and then throughout an entire book, you cared a lot about them and felt like they'd always been part of the Star Wars universe. Yeah, it was the progression of their lives and their relationships. That's the same type of thing. Yeah. That's what we're feeling from this. It's it's like you said. It's like we're moving the characters forward. It's not like we have to keep them in the same place for the next episode. They're mm-hmm. constantly, from the beginning to the end of the book, they're in a new place once we get to the end than they were at the beginning. And that's what's really important. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge one for me. I was actually just talking about Voyager uh, with someone today and saying like, the serialized nature of television these days would have been so great if Voy- if Voyager had been around during that period because the story lends itself to that. You're on, in the case of the TV show, you're on this extended journey trying to get home. And in the case of these books, you're on an extended mission with a fleet of ships kind of advancing one major storyline forward with, you know, smaller story li- stories interspersed throughout. But yeah, it... it these characters are changed by the end of Full Circle and changed again by the end of Unworthy, and it matters. Whereas the TV show, it was, you know, play with the pieces and put them back on the shelf exactly the way they were when you're done. And that is, you know, may have been satisfying at some point, but, you know, for a show like Voyager especially, it was supremely unsatisfying. Now, don't hate me, don't hate me, but I don't miss Janeway. And it's only because of the strength of these characters. It's the strength of the characters are so good in here that I don't miss the captain. I don't miss Janeway being in this book. I love Janeway, but it's not like I went, this book would have been better if Janeway were in here. I don't miss Mm -hmm. her. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. That makes a lot of sense to me too, yeah. Well, and I think that can only happen because of the way in which Kirsten used that death of Janeway to propel a lot of these characters forward. I mean, she used that to her full advantage, especially with a character like Chakotay. I think that's an incredible work on her part. And what she's done is shown that the characters on Voyager had limited potential because of the way in which they were used in the show. But in all reality, what these characters had was unlimited potential. And she's opened up that, you know, Voyager box and just let all the butterflies out, you know, and and now they can just create and do whatever it is they do. And and all the Voyager characters get to do that too. And I think that's the thing that I so respond to. And, you know, reading through this a second time, I was just struck by that. And what I thought was great as well is that this isn't one of her books where she's really pulling on a ton of threads from the series. Like, we're not very far into the Delta Quadrant yet, so the threads she's pulling on are just a couple of plot points from you know Voyager's time in the Delta Quadrant. She really uses this book to set up all of these characters, who they are, uh, really put everything in place firmly mm-hmm. for what we're going to be moving forward, and I think that was really smart. So it makes this book feel a little bit smaller than Full Circle, But at the same time, the character development you're getting in, it is just as important. Yeah, in a lot of ways, this feels to me like part two of the series premiere of Voyager going forward. If kind of the the second half of Full Circle would be part one, if that makes sense. You know, this really feels like, like at the end of this book, I really got the same feeling as I did watching Caretaker and that final scene where Janeway sets them on their mission. You know, they've... They've arrived here in the Delta Quadrant. They've done some stuff, but this really feels like, okay, we've got our crew together. Chakotay's the captain. Seven of Nine's officially aboard. Belana's got her new position. 
we're starting our real mission now with the real Voyager crew. And it, it, it had that feel to me of, okay, now, you know, now the pilot's over. We're going to get going on the rest of the series now. That's a good point. It does feel that way. Um, yeah, Full Circle feels like the, oh yeah, like it's the beginning of this new stage in Voyager. And then this is the first link to get us to where the story really takes off. It's mm-hmm. I, it's hard to explain. It's like this is the setup to where things are going to go forward. But I almost want to say that's what full circle is. But I almost full I almost feel like full circle got us to where we needed to be in order to set up the story where it's going to go forward. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, I completely. Uh, and I love that idea almost that is Dan, you were saying it, it kind of creates this three part structure, like those classic enterprise arcs that they would do with three parts, full circle, and this kind of make a three part arc. And I, I I'm with you. It does kind of feel like, oh, we're we're really where like Kirsten was finally be able to put all the pieces in the puzzle where she needed them to fully move forward, you know. Um but I never feel like she's just moving puzzle pieces here. I'm totally invested. I think that's the thing we're all talking about with her writing these characters and making it feel so important. And the other part about it was is that she reveals a lot of interesting mysteries about a lot of different things in this. And I really, really like that. Yeah, there's a a lot. Like We talk a lot about the character work being done, but there is actually also a lot going on plot-wise. So, you know, um, Megan, for example, is seemingly this young medical ensign who uh, seems to be taking a bit of a shine to the doctor. And, you know, you get the impression as the book goes on that there's something up with this character. What's going on here? And then, you know, her, her ultimate nature is revealed and you find out why she's there and, and what's been going on. And, and then, you know, when that kind of secret plan of Barclays goes awry, you know, it, it, it really pays off big time in the end here. I like it. I like Megan up to that point. But then what happens to Megan later just doesn't really work for me. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. It's just the fact that, well, I think because she doesn't really exist anymore. She, her body's taken over by mm-hmm. this, you know, what is it? Indigen, engine, 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 Joe, whatever. Indigen, whatever. The indigen. That's what I was calling him. I dig it about the indigen. Um, <laughs> so, and, and as soon as I hit that part, I was like, oh yeah, I remember reading this book, and it, I, I didn't really care for that the the first time I read it, and I don't really care for it that much this time either. I just found it a little confusing i kept in thinking of the original megan and not the this new megan and what happened to the old megan if this alien took over her body and i i don't know it's not that it's bad it's just i was enjoying what was happening with the character that i didn't like that it ended and we started something different with her yeah i'm kind of with you there i i mean i'm a big fan of mushy schmaltzy romantic i guess sort of stuff i i i would love to see how that plays out how you know megan maybe gets closer to the doctor over years and that kind of thing like i i'm I'm sad that that story had to end before we got to see that play out because i think that could have been really cool too you know what the nice thing though is about a non-sentient program you can always create another one (laughs) so uh they that's true could always say that Dr. Zimmerman has another Megan somewhere, you know, or maybe he's been perfecting (laughs) one. What I loved about this idea, though, was the way in which Reg and Dr. Zimmer had been thinking about the doctor and this fact that they realized, look, yeah, he can fall in love with people, but he has that same immortality problem that all immortals have, which is whoever I fall in love with is going to die. And so your life would consistently be one of falling in love with people, they're getting older, and you can't really have the same experiences in a lot of ways because you don't get older. You know, like none of that stuff happens. So a lot of the things that mark a relationship you can have, but also a lot of things that mark a relationship you can't have, which 
creates a very interesting argument for whether it's truly a sentient program, if you can't age or all that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, just it creates some interesting questions to to we don't have time on the show to talk well, about so, tonight. Should they but. have instead programmed the doctor to age and give him a, an age limit so he's not immortal? If he I, really wants to be human. Yeah, that's another interesting question. I mean, how do you turn Pinocchio into a, a real boy? A real boy? I'm a real boy. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Let's hear it, Mickey Mouse one time. Ah, why? Um, uh, it freaks me out I just, every time. <laughs> I, what's so interesting, though, about it was the reason to why they had created Megan and not told the doctor. I thought that was a really... And, and it wasn't like they were lying to him. They just knew he probably won't accept this person if we tell him what it is. And he then says later when he finds out and he's a little upset, he's like, yeah, you're probably right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I just, I liked all that stuff. I thought it was really interesting. And, you know, we didn't know at the time, but when you read this the first time, you didn't know how this was going to play out. And she doesn't pick that up until quite a bit later. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, we, we, she really let that mystery play out for quite a while, but, I thought that this was an interesting way of having it go, and especially when I didn't even know it was going to go. I don't mind the resolution. I don't mind what happens to Megan. I would love to see maybe sometime the doctor come to Reg and say, you know, I've been thinking about all that happened with Megan, and maybe maybe we can, you know, build a perfect, person for me or at least just somebody that that could be a possibility with because he's been thinking about that idea of his immortality which i mean he's not really immortal because you could always take him online and never bring him back um and so he could be lost he could die as as we know it it ceases to exist but for all intents and purposes he also could be immortal uh as long as he has a power source <laughs> so you know i i think it it just creates really interesting dynamic that they could continue with the doctor and I would love to see that. And then with Batiste, I, I just I it was fun knowing what was coming this time so you could pick up on all the little clues. But bringing back eight four seven two I thought was just fantastic. Cause and and even just the way that she does it, uh where uh, you know, Valerie Archer is the one that comes out and she she still kind of has a thing for, uh, you know, Chicote, and he kind of, you know, they flirt back and forth a little bit. And it's like that whole thing, like, was really interesting. And it, it created a nice bow on that whole story that I hope that, you know, that somewhere along the line, Kirsten kind of unwraps again because I think it would be really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, this I, I think of as another example of Kirsten Beyer taking something from the series that maybe didn't play out very well or was kind of lackluster and turning it into into something pretty cool. Uh, I really liked, you know, 8472 as this implacable, unknowable enemy, or not not necessarily enemy, but, you know, unknowable other. And then when they were all, like, disguised as humans in that training thing, I felt it really undercut 8472 and, and made them kind of, eh. But then you know, Kirsten Beyer brings them back. And even in that form, she still manages to make them very enigmatic and unknowable and mysterious. And I thought that was really cool. And I actually really appreciated the return of Valerie Archer. And I I never thought I would, you know, like that aspect of 8472. Uh, So, you know, it's, it's, it's something here that she will continue to do in future books is really taking something kind of meh from Voyager and turning it into something pretty cool. Yeah, I liked it. It was, uh, I had forgotten this part of the book. Um, I knew something happened to Batiste, but I couldn't remember exactly what happened. And then so when 8472 came into it, and since they can take human form, you know, this they've sent out several of the members of their species out and you know, they could be living among us looking like humans, but, they, you know, they can only retain that human form for so long and they die. And Batiste is trying to stay alive as long as he can and return home. And they don't want them to return home because they're going to contaminate their realm. And 
they eventually let him in, but it's it was just interesting how he had to really fight his way back to come home and they didn't want him. They sent him out on a mission and it was a one-way mission and you're not coming home and you know, he he got back, but it, anyway, I thought it was an interesting storyline. I yeah, what I I really liked is the way in which Chakotay was instrumental in kind of talking them in to allowing Batiste back. And the way in which that gives an opening later on to using them again in a story point. And I just thought that was really smart. And it also did a really good job of continuing that Chicote storyline, which we've been talking about, where I just think it was really successful and helping you really like this character. Because, man, this guy has grown so much as, as a person in, you know, the last few years in the books and i just i think it's fantastic so one of the really interesting thing is and we've talked about this a few times obviously in the show together we have this whole thing about whether or not they're going to play god with the indigenous and with the prime directive and worrying about their worship in the borg and how much do we tell them about what happened to the borg who the borg really were and i i think to me, that was a really interesting plot line, especially with the way in which Seven was reacting to that idea, too. So for somebody who's actually understood what the Borg truly were. So I, I just I thought that was really smart because it was coming at it not just from a, a Starfleet angle, but also that really personal level, which changed the, the tone of the discussion. Yeah, this was a really fascinating part of the story for sure you know the uh, the idea that this race would or sorry this collective of races I, I guess would kind of put the Borg at that central place in their mythology I thought was a really fascinating idea and yeah what Kirsten Beyer does with the story here is really cool um, you know especially doing things like emulating the Borg and the sacrifices they're making to the Borg to appease them it really makes a lot of sense when you think about it you know, something that powerful could very easily uh, take that place in a in a in a culture's mythology. Uh, who would think that there would be someone out there that wants to be Borg? That is that is just the strangest thing that I can even imagine. Yet, hey, why not tackle that in a Star Trek story? And you know, this is uh, I think it's what seven different races that are in a collective that of themselves, and they're not worthy enough for the Borg to even be interested in them. And so they're trying to prove themselves to one day reach the level that the Borg are because the Borg have ultimately accomplished a collective that they admire and they think is so much superior to theirs. It is like a God thing. It's, you know, we are trying to become perfect and the Borg are perfect. And that is our God. That's where we want to be. It's almost like this is this is heaven to us. If we ever got in the collective of the Borg, then we have we have met what we have been trying to achieve and doing it with perfection. And they even built their ships into cubes, not mm -hmm. exactly like the Borg cubes. They didn't look exactly like this, but they were even emulating their ships to be like that. It's a very weird take to think that some race out there or a collective of races would want to be like these Borg. I mean, they're they're evil. They're going to take you over. I want to be a real Borg. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I keep thinking. Like, And I thought that was an interesting take, that, that there would be somebody who wanted to be Borg, who saw them and thought, well, they are just the I Ching. They are just it. You know, and that puts a whole new spin on how we look at the universe. And it really gives you that whole kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi from a certain point of view. From their view, yeah, the Borg seem like the thing you want to be. And I, I again, turning that on its head was just unexpected and really well done by Kirsten because it creates an interesting argument. So it's not just kind of the classic prime directive argument. You know, and I just the whole thing was just so well crafted to make you sit and have to be like, hmm, never thought about it like that. Now, how tr how tragic is it to be 
so you know emulating your gods and and standing before them and saying we're trying to be like you and have them look at you and go eh. yeah and <laughs> how is it to be a starfleet officer knowing that the borg don't exist anymore and how do you tell this collective that their god is dead and that mm. was part of the storyline in here too do you even tell them that they're not even in existence anymore and would they even believe you I want to be Matt Rushing, but that he's still alive. So I, I still have hope. <laughs> and, you know, and, and the role that seven of nine takes in this story, basically, you know, McCoy jokes uh, in the original series about wanting to beam down to a planet and saying, you know, I am, Ar I am the Archangel Gabriel. I, I bring you a message from your gods. Seven of nine basically kind of does that for these people at the end of the story. And I love that she kind of, pauses when she's trying to say what she did because she feels a little bit i don't know if i should have done that but she basically appears as a messenger from their gods to give them an update you know it's really kind of interesting i'm surprised she didn't say i am the archangel seven <laughs> and i bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people um yeah that's that's really funny it's a, it is an interesting thought to think that she is a messenger that's that's telling them something, but she's also lying to them. Mm -hmm. And as we know from many of Star Trek stories and many of films that we watch these days, when you build something on a lie, it tends to go badly. And so that's my question is, it was lying to them better than just telling them the truth? Because... The truth is the truth. You can deal with it, you know. It might take a while, but when you find out you've been lied to and you've been you've built that yourself on that lie, that makes people angry. <laughs> you know, so that I think that again, that's another thread you could come back to later on down the road and yeah, playing God is not easy. I I wouldn't want to be the archangel 7 of 9. So I wonder if uh I wonder if Seven will try and try to pull the Obi-Wan, well, what I said is true from a certain point of view thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She'll just play that scene from Star Wars. Let me explain it to you. Uh, cue up Star Wars. Uh, no, no, you're going to want to go to episode six. Yes, there you go. Um. <laughs> and we'll believe her just as much as I believed Obi-Wan. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It, yeah. Um, okay, so Tom and Harry, Harry is not happy. I mean, he's happy that Bulana and Muriel are alive. He's not happy that he got lied to. And I wanted to ask how well this part of the story works for you guys. I, as difficult as this part of the story is, I really appreciated it. Um, you know, as much as you just want to get them back together and say, oh, come, come on, just, just forgive him and understand him and become friends again. It, it feels very real to me. Like, it feels like there's been a betrayal here. And I think Harry uh, voices his feelings very, really well when he tells Tom that, you know, you didn't, when it comes down to it, you didn't trust me. You didn't, you didn't trust that I could take this information and keep it a secret and that sort of thing. Um, and that hurts. And yeah, it does really hurt. And I think the writing in this book is strong enough that that comes across so well. And it's so, you know, in, in some ways very obvious in some parts, but also just very subtly written in some parts too, through, through Harry's uh, body language and, and just little scenes that you can tell there's this very physical distance that's grown between the two. And, you know, it was, it was painful to read because, you know, I've, I've had relationships with friends that have, have soured really badly over something and you still have to be in a be in the same areas that maybe you work with them or something like that. And and it's it's very difficult. I've always liked Tom and Jerry. Those were very funny cartoons. But I also like Tom and Harry. This storyline worked out really well for me. And I did feel bad for Harry because, you know, when your best friend doesn't tell you something. Well, it's not even just that. I mean, he's close. He he said that he feels like he is family, that he's part of Tom and Balana's life. And to tell someone that 
part of your family has died. Actually, two members of your family have died. And it's a lie because you can't trust them with this information. I mean, actually, I think Harry handled it very civil and handled it better than I think than most people. And I don't blame him for being mad at Tom, but I also felt bad for Tom and the fact that he's had to keep this secret from Harry this whole time. And Harry doesn't trust Tom enough and in honor the fact that he had to make this sacrifice himself of keeping mm -hmm. a secret from his best friend. And that can be hurtful too. But at the same time, I thought it's, I would be even more ticked off if I were Harry because now that we know that Balana and Muriel are alive, the whole ship knows and the ship is told by Captain Eden, don't tell anybody. So we now trust the crew not to tell anybody that they're alive and on the ship, outside of the ship. But while, what, Tom couldn't trust just Harry to keep a secret, now we can trust a whole crew to keep a secret? It's, it seems really unfair. I'm going to come at this from a completely different perspective. And I, th I don't like Harry in this book. I don't like his, his and, and this is, this is the thing. Uh, and, but I think it's consistent with Harry's character, but I don't like it. Uh, Harry is, he's an only child. It's always been all about him. And so, for him to look at this situation, if you if you are in his thoughts as we are in the book, it always comes back to the fact that he can't see himself doing what Tom did. That's irrelevant. Tom did what he thought was best for him and his family. Harry, you're not part of that family. You're not the one in danger. So whether you can say that you would do the same thing is not the point. The point is to say that you respect your friend enough to respect the decisions that they make, even if they don't involve you. That's being a man about it. Like, just a person who can put themselves not above... I mean, and that's what I, I feel like Harry's doing. He's putting himself above Tom and saying, I'm better because I wouldn't have done that. But that... There's no right or wrong here. Mm -hmm. This isn't one of those situations. This is a, a completely gray situation. Your family's in danger. You're not sure what to do. And you talk about it with some advisors and you feel like the best course of action is to do this. That requires you not to tell certain people. Certain people? Why not tell Harry? Well, uh, because they don't tell anybody. Yeah, but why like, not just? Why, what's wrong with telling Harry? Maybe no, a couple I, people. No, I, I, they're, they're because I think they're trying to keep it as tight as possible. They, they don't want any screw ups. They've already. But it's had not tight trouble, now. So. I mean, they're still in danger. Well, no, it's not now. But that, that, that's a different situation than it was then. And I think the question can be asked: Did, did Tom and Bolana do the right thing? Should they have trusted more people? I think we all would say the answer to that question is yes. But at the same time, Chakotay understands it. The doctor gets it. Everybody else gets it but Harry because Harry's thinking about it only from Harry's perspective because Harry got hurt because Harry's a big fat baby who can't deal with the fact that Tom's got bigger issues to deal with than when whether Harry's feelings are hurt or not. Harry's Tom's thinking about the life of his wife and his child. He doesn't give a rat's ass about <laughs> Harry's feelings. Like that's what bothers me is that nobody kind of challenges Harry on the fact that he's being utterly selfish in his reaction, which is understandable. But at the same time, it's just not dealt with in the book. Like everybody just seems to be like, Oh, well, Harry has this, you know, it's like he needs to go to work this out with Cambridge. Um, yeah. Not just with Tom. Put him on a holodeck and work it out. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like the resolution and I like that yeah. they don't have this lingering for books and books. And I thought it was very funny that obviously their way of dealing with it was to get them locked in the holodeck. So they have to go through a Bride of Chaotica uh, chapter, which is fantastic. And they'll be in there for days until they work this out. That was awesome because that's very Tom and Harry. But it, I just, I came at it from a different perspective. I can understand where Harry's coming from, but I also think it's it's very classic sentiment from today that 
oh, my feelings got hurt, and that's really all that matters. When mm. that's not the situation. Let's say we want to go with this Harry's hurt in the story. It may have worked better if Harry found out that another crew member was told, that Tom told, let's say, Chakotay. And then for Harry's upset because... Tom didn't trust Harry, but for some reason you trusted Jacote or whoever, seven to nine. Like maybe if they had told someone else, it would make more sense and maybe support Harry. We would understand Harry being mad and support the fact that he's mad because Tom trusted someone else besides himself, besides Harry. I think the whole thing with Harry being mad, I, I agree with Matthew. It's very consistent with Harry's character. So I, I have no problem buying into that. And you know, Matthew, kind of what you say about, you know, Harry getting over it, he should get over it and that kind of thing. That's one of the things about these two characters is I know that he will get there, you know. Yeah, yeah. that's a good yeah. point. And Harry's always been, you know, a, a little bit on the emotionally immature side of things. Like even in this series, falling for the wrong woman <laughs> all the time and, and you know, oh, that darn Harry, you know. So... He's he's kind of it kind of makes sense with his character here that he just doesn't know how to deal maturely with with what's going on. I, I think both sides of this argument between uh, Tom and Harry are both right and wrong. Like, I think they, they're they both they both did things and are handling things not in the most grown up best way they could have. But this is handled much better than in the Enterprise books where Travis Mayweather is mad at Captain Archer. Yes. And that, that, that doesn't work out as well as this. This plays much better. Agree absolutely with that for sure. Yeah. No, that's that's a really good point. And, and I think, again, this is a great thing where it doesn't last for more than a book. You know, uh, we're dealing with it by the time we get into Children of the Storm. Things are going to be more together with those two they'll have kind of worked out their issues and i think that that is great and it does raise that interesting question like you know how well do we really know the people around us you know we think we do but then something comes along like with eden and batiste or tom and harry or you know chakotay with kim too i mean uh that whole thing we get that question i think that it was a nice thing in the book because what I what I liked about what Kirsten's doing is that it's this transition period. Everybody's moving forward. When you do that, anytime you move forward, there's going to be a period of adjustment for any relationship that you have, good and bad. And that was really cool to see. Like, how well do you know your friends? Well, sometimes you know them better than you know yourself, and sometimes you realize there's things about them you still don't know and that means you got more to work on. You know, like that was, I thought that was really great here because uh, especially with the way that Eden and Batiste and then on top of that with Chakotay talking about how he realized how difficult that was for her at the end and just the way that played out was so nuanced. Only a good writer could make you feel for Eden and Batiste, two characters that you just met last book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. This, this was a theme that, definitely seem to be um coming through in a lot of different cases in here you know even the indigent not really understanding the nature of the borg even though they think they know them and and want to be them uh and i was thinking even species 8472 and they're worrying about batiste about how long he spent away they're like you know we don't really know him he's going to bring corruption that kind of thing there's kind of this idea that Someone who you're supposed to know and supposed to trust, someone who is close to you, is maybe not what you think or not all that you think they are, uh, which I thought, you know, was a really interesting thing here. You know, like you said, even Harry Kim thinks Chakotay might have been behind the sabotage and that sort of thing. Lifelong friends, and they're kind of looking at each other askance here going, do I really know you? Maybe not as well as I think. You know, talking about Harry's reaction that Chakotay uh, could be guilty of the sabotage that has occur has occurred, it now makes me think of how Harry does kind of come across as a bit of a baby in this book. <laughs> you know, he's, you know, Tom, you didn't tell me the truth. And Chakotay, yeah, well, he could have done it. And Tom's actually the one who's, you know, standing behind Chakotay saying, no, I know Chakotay. I know he would not do this. You know, I've served with this guy. I've known him for 10 years. 
And he's even turned to Harry. Harry, you know Chakotay. And he's like, yeah, well, maybe. I don't know. But then in some ways, he does have the right to be a little suspicious about Chakotay because Chakotay's kind of fallen off the rocker a little earlier in the book, in the previous book in full circle to the point that they didn't even want to give him command of the vo- a Voyager back to him because mm. he was having issues with the death of Janeway. I'm so, glad that they referenced that, by the yeah, way, in that, so because it, that makes a lot of sense. It's a good tie between those two novels and bringing those two stories together. Um, no, I, I, I think that's the thing about this book that makes it so enjoyable, is that all the stories are kind of playing into each other. And it goes with the theme of the book of this kind of idea of unworthiness. And, you know, everybody is having this feeling of inadequacy in their life and and having their mistakes kind of pointed out to them or trying to learn to overcome those mistakes. And I thought that was really interesting because it leads into the last thing I wanted to talk to you guys about pretty quickly here was identity and the question of who we are is a big one. Obviously our world is gone nuts with the idea of how do I find out who I am? What am I? You know? Uh, and, Seven is really facing that question, but it's not just Seven. It's Chakotay. It's Bellana. It's Harry. It's Eden. All of these people are trying to figure out their... Batiste is trying to figure out, you know, am I going to still be able to be a 8472, a species 8472, or am I going to be killed? You know, like, it, it was really nice to see all of these people grow in their identity and to watch it shape into mold and to form in these different ways. And I thought, honestly, that's wonderful because we're struggling this, but I love that these characters are struggling with it, but it's not crippling to them. You know, they're finding ways to work through the issues. And that's what I found so encouraging. You know, that's where Star Trek, I think, really does. It mirrors our world, but it also gives us hope, hopefully, for the future. Yeah, this was a, a really cool aspect. I mean, you know, brought to life most uh, obviously with Seven, who literally has a voice in her head telling her that she's someone she's not, you know, and her having to deal with that and then realize, you know, maybe I need to incorporate that identity and, and kind of coming out the other side more whole. And yeah, I really loved, you know, kind of the idea of identity, but also finding your place in the world um Chakotay you know kind of ah, I guess I'm just gonna go be a drifter I'll find something to do and then oh no okay I get my ship back that's cool and and Bolana, you know kind of just gonna be a stay-at-home mom and and kind of thinking that maybe she's just going to be defined by her relationships with other people you know she's Miral's mother she's Tom's wife but you know that's kind of her role but then realizing that she has more to offer the fleet than she thought she did. You know, there's a lot of really cool touchstones of these characters finding their place in the universe here, which I, you know, I think is really, really great. Seven reminds me of Spock and uh, the fact that Spock is always struggling with his human side and his Vulcan side. And in this book, Seven's struggling between Annika and Seven of Nine. And who is she now? She's not really Annika who she used to be, and that's what's starting to call to her, but she can't fully accept it because she's been Borg, and she's seven of nine, but even she's not even Borg. All her implants are gone. She's evolved beyond that, so what is she now? That's the thing she's struggling to identify is who is she at this moment, and I think she finally reaches a point that she accepts the fact that, well, she's not what she was before, but she's a combination of all those experiences into one and accepting that she is part Annika seven of nine. It's she's a meld of that. And that's the same thing with Spock eventually accepting his human side and his Vulcan side. And if, and accepting the fact that, you know, they're unique individuals. And I really enjoyed that about seven's development and yeah, Chakotay finding his place into this universe that he returns back to the Alpha Quadrant. He no longer he no longer has a ship, but we somehow see see family always always come to, coming together again. I mean, as we get through the books, as this series progresses along, everybody finds their place back to where they started in the Voyager series, except for Tuvok. Poor Tuvok, he's out with there with Riker. <laughs> 
Yep, stuck with the Riker man. Um, I just I I love this this book, and uh, I I guess the last thing, what do you guys rate this one? It's kind of a hard thing because you know if I were to just kind of go with it, I would probably almost rate every Kirsten Beyer novel five stars or something like that. But you know you, you can't really do that. Um, I rated Full Circle five stars, and and. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to be here for that episode, but I, I listened to that and agreed with, you know, 99.9% of what you guys had to say. Absolutely. Uh, this one, I feel, is very, very, very close to that level. It's not quite on the same pedestal that I would put full circle, but it's it's right up there. I mean, Kirsten Beyer is definitely uh, probably one of, if not the premier author of Star Trek books right now. It's just, you know, when if, whenever her name pops up on the schedule, you know it's going to be a great book. And this was an excellent book. I think this might have been the second novel that I reviewed on my website. And, uh, you know, I read my review of that today and it was just glowing. And it hasn't changed at all. Um, to kind of keep things not too high throughout the whole series, I'm going to give this one four stars out of five. Uh, just because it's it's not quite at the same level as for Full Circle, but still a very, very masterful work. She's got such a great handle on these characters. And man, I just, I love the Voyager characters. And I never, ever thought that I would say that before these books came around. If only Kess would come back and see what we could do with her. Um, that I would like to see, actually. But I gave Full Circle five stars. I enjoyed this almost as much, not quite. It's very, very close. I wouldn't go as low as four stars, but I would give it a canister with an alien ant entity in it, but with a slight dent on the side. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, Dan. Uh, this, this book, I can't rate it five, but that's just because, you know, full circle. And I think for me, uh, when I talked about it before, Eternal Tide would be fives. That that doesn't have any impact on how good this book is. Uh, it's not a lesser book. It's just a different type of book than Full Circle, I think, The Eternal Tide is. But it's so character-focused. It's so wonderfully done. I enjoy it so much. It is four out of five, seven of nine archangels. I mean, just, it's... It's a really good book, and I loved reading it. And all I all I'm thinking to myself is, is when are we getting to Children of the Storm? Because I just want to dive into some more Voyager because I'm having such a good time. And that's one of the things that I love is that I feel like if you read these Voyager books, it's going to ignite your passion for Trek lit, and and that's fantastic. And Kirsten Byer will always be one of my favorite people who have written Star Trek books because of how much she's helped me fall in love with characters that I couldn't stand before but now are some of my favorites and if you can do that you're a master so thank you uh and uh yeah it's, it's just the, yeah that's the way it is well I think uh it's pretty apparent from our ratings that we all really loved unworthy uh not really a surprise given whose name is on the cover for sure I I can't think that it would be a surprise uh it's definitely not unworthy of the greatness that kirsten had already given us with full circle that's for sure agreed i you know i i, I just can't wait till she comes out with another book which i think has been going to be quite a while but uh you know she hasn't disappointed us yet it's true and i i'm i'm i, I don't you know want to speak for kirsten but i don't think she's ever going to so Guys, it's it's a blast to be able to talk about this stuff with you, and I love that we get to do it because of our associate producers here through Patreon. We have Ken Tripp, Brandon Shamatella, Bruce Gibson, and Norman Lau, who's now an associate on every single show, which is just fantastic. Uh, we really appreciate him and his support and all that he's done for the network. And that happens because of Patreon. Patreon.com slash TrekFM is the place that you can go to make sure that all the shows here on TrekFM keep coming to you each and every week. And we definitely need your help. So to go there, support us just a little bit a month. You have no idea what it means to us. Uh, it makes sure that all the shows keep coming to you uninterrupted. And 
pretty much ad-free. You know, you just get great content, fun stuff every single week, over 20 different shows and special feeds, and all because of you. So thank you so much for all of you who do support. And if you'd like to, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you could become part of the team. Now, Dan, when you're not finding out that your girlfriend is actually a now evil hologram, uh, where can we find you? Seriously, again? This is getting ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> How many times has this happened? Once, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's been a lot. Don't don't count it. It's it's embarrassing. Well, you know when uh, you can usually find me talking about my woes on Facebook. Uh, you can find me there at facebook.com slash Productions. I'm also on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions, Twitter at Kurtrats. And uh, you can also find me kicking around the Babel Conference. That's our Trek FM listeners only group on Facebook. And Bruce, when you're not trying to open up a singularity to return to fluidic space, where can we find you? You can find me swimming around over at Star Wars Report. You can check out that podcast. I'm on there occasionally. You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you do find me hanging out at the Babel Conference quite often. I've been checking things out there quite a bit. And uh, so, Matt, let me ask you, when you're not getting mad at Dan for keeping secrets from you, where can people find you? Again, Dan? Seriously? I, I can't talk about it. Well, you can find me on Twitter, lamenting about it, MattRushing02. I'll probably take pictures of myself, just sad selfies on Instagram at MRushing. Uh, you can find me doing The Orb here with Chris Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. I'm also doing The 602 Club, which is our general geek show. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Bruce shows up there a lot. We talk a lot of fun stuff like gosh star wars comic book movies old geeky movies from like the 80s everything in between tv shows just it's a blast so just check it out and of course uh, i'm on a show called aggressive negotiations with my friend john mills and that's on the nerd party network at the nerdparty.com and you can also find us on itunes well thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.